six. Please, I gotta talk to my mother, Steve DeVay said for the third time. I'm gonna get her to mellow out my stepfather, or there's going to be one hell of a punching match when I get home. In a little while, Officer Charles Savarino told them, both Savarino and his partner, Barney Morrison, knew that Steve DeBay would not be going home tonight, and maybe not for many nights to come. The boy did not seem to realize just how heavy this particular bust was, and Savarino would not be surprised when he learned, later on, that DeBay had left school at age 16. At that time he had still been in Water Street Junior High. His IQ was 68, according to Wetzler he had taken during one of his three trips through the seventh grade. Tell us what happened when you saw Melon coming out of the Falcon, Morrison invited. No, man, I better not. Well, why not? Avarino asked. I already talked too much, maybe. You came in to talk, Avarino said. Isn't that right? Well, yeah, but... Listen, Morrison said warmly, sitting down next to the bay and shooting him a cigarette. You think me and Chick here like facts? I don't know. Do we look like we like facts? No, but... We're your friends, Tivo, Morrison said solemnly. And believe me, you and Chris and Webby need all the friends you can get just about now, because tomorrow... Every bleeding heart in this town is going to be screaming for your guy's blood. Steve Dubay looked dimly alarmed. Avarino, who could almost read his hairbag's pussy little mind, suspected he was thinking about his stepfather again. And although Avarino had no liking for Derry's small gay community, like every other cop on the force, he would enjoy seeing the Falcon shut up forever. He would have been delighted to drive Dubay home himself. He would, in fact have been delighted to hold the bay's arm while the bay's stepfather beat the crib to oatmeal. Avarino did not like gays, but this did not mean he believed they should be tortured and murdered. Melon had been savaged when they brought him up from under the canal bridge. His eyes had been open, bulging with terror, and this guy here had absolutely no idea of what he had helped do. We didn't mean to hurt him. Steve repeated. This was his fallback position when he became even slightly confused. That's why you want to get out front with us, Avarino said earnestly. Get the true facts of the matter out in front, and this maybe won't amount to a piece hole in the snow. Isn't that right, Barney? As rain, Morrison agreed. One more time, what do you say? Avarino coaxed. Well... Steve said, and then, slowly, began to talk. 7. When the Falcon was opened in 1973, Elmer Curti thought his clientele would consist most of bus riders. The terminal next door serviced three different lines, Trailways, Greyhound, and Aristu County. What he failed to realize was how many of the passengers who ride buses are women or families with small children in tow. Many of the others kept their bottles in brown bags and never got off the bus at all. Those who did were usually soldiers or sailors who wanted no more than a quick beer or two. You couldn't very well go on a bender during a ten-minute rest stop. 
Conti had begun to realize some of these home truths by 1977. But by then, it was too late. He was up to his teeth in bills and there was no way that he could see out of the red ink. The idea of burning the place down for the insurance occurred to him. But unless he hired a professional to touch it, he supposed he would be caught, and he had no idea who a professional arsonist hung out anyway. He decided in February of that year that he would give it until July the 4th. If things didn't look as if they were turning around by then, he would simply walk next door, get on hand, and see how things looked down in Florida. But in the next five months, an amazing quiet sort of prosperity came to the bar, which was painted black and gold inside and decorated with stuffed birds. Elmer Curtis's brother had been an amateur taxidermist who specialized in birds, and Elmer had inherited the stuff when he died. Suddenly, instead of drawing 60 beers and pouring maybe 20 drinks a night, Elmer was drawing 80 beers and pouring 100 drinks, 120, sometimes 160. His clientele was young, polite, almost exclusively male. Many of them dressed outrageously, but those were years when outrageous dress was still almost the norm. And Elmer Cote did not realize that his patrons were just about almost exclusively gay until 1981 or so. If their residents had heard him say this, they would have laughed and said that Elmer Cote must think they had all been born yesterday. But his claim was perfectly true. Like the man with the cheating wife, he was practically the last to know. And by the time he did, he didn't care. The bar was making money, and while there were four other bars in there which turned a profit, the Falcon was the only who rambunctious patrons did not regularly demolish the whole place. There were no women to fight over, for one thing, and these men, facts or not, seemed to have learned a secret of getting along with each other which their heterosexual counterparts did not know. Once he became aware of the sexual preference of his regulars, he seemed to hear lurid stories about the Falcon everywhere. These stories had been circulating for years, but until 81, Cotty simply hadn't heard them. The most enthusiastic tellers of these tales, he came to realize, were men who wouldn't be dragged into the Falcon with a chain fall for fear all the muscles would go out of their wrists or something, and they seemed private to all sorts of information. According to the stories, you could go in there any night and see men close dancing, rubbing their cocks together right out on the dance floor, men French kissing at the bar, men getting blowjobs in the bathrooms. There was supposedly a room out back where you went if you wanted to spend a little time on the Tower of Power. There was a big old fellow in a Nazi uniform back there who kept his arm greased most of the way to the shoulder and who would be happy to take care of you. In fact, none of these things were true. When folks with a thirst did come in from the bus station for a beer or a highball, they sensed nothing out of the ordinary in the Falcon at all. There were a lot of gay, sure, but that was no different than thousands of working men's bars all across the country. The clientele was gay, but gay was not a synonym for stupid. If they wanted a little outrageousness, they went to Portland. If they wanted a lot of outrageousness, Rambert-style outrageousness or Peck's big boy-style outrageousness, they went down to New York or Boston. There it was small. There it was provincial, and there is small gay community understood the shadow under which it existed quite well. 
on her as he had been coming into the Falcon for two or three years in the night of March 1984 when he first showed up with Adrian Mellon. Before then, Hagati had been the sort who plays the field, rarely showing up with the same escort half a dozen times. But by late April, it had become obvious even to Elmer Curti, who cared very little about such things, that Hagati and Mellon had a steady thing going. Hagati was a draftsman with an engineering firm in Bangor. Adrian Mellon was a freelance writer who published anywhere and everywhere he could. Airline magazines, confessions magazines, regional magazines, Sunday supplements, sex letter magazines. He had been working on a novel, but maybe that wasn't serious. He had been working on it since his third year of college, and that had been 12 years ago. He had come to Derry to write a piece about the canal. He was on assignment from New England Bayways a glossy bi-monthly that was published in Concord. Adrian Mellon had taken the assignment because he could squeeze Bayways for three weeks' worth of expense money, including a nice room at the Derry Town House, and got all the material he needed for the piece in maybe five days. During the other two weeks, he could gather enough material for maybe four other regional pieces. But during that three-week period, he met Don Haggerty and instead of going back to Portland when his three weeks on the cough were over, he found himself a small apartment on Cusseth Lane. He lived there for only six weeks. Then he moved in with Don Haggerty.